This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash laststandmedia. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother, Dig- Diggin Tangina Barons Moriarty. Diggin, thank you <laughs> for joining me today. I had to go find the name real quick because I knew I wanted to use that. This house is clean. <laughs> <laughs> I like hell it is. <laughs> like I, yeah, Jesus we gotta Christ. get to we gotta the, get to that. Yeah, I, there's a there's a lot to say, but dig there really is. This is this is knockback our retro and nostalgia podcast we do each and every week. You can join us uh, a week early and ad free on Patreon, patreoncom media We are the biggest games and nerd culture related Patreon in the world. Thanks to you, we appreciate you. Thank you for joining us over there. We couldn't do it without you. Submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas to the show. Although we have none for this episode because we kind of turned at the last minute to do this episode, and we're we gonna don't do the you. episode. Frankly, your input's not needed. <laughs> but you can also submit your uh, ideas for topics, et cetera, et cetera. We really appreciate your support over there. So thank you so much. Dagan, before we get into it, we always like to you know, stretch our legs a little bit. So I'm just curious how, how your life is and what's going on. I like stretch your legs. It's better than icebreaker. I always say icebreaker, but it's not really an icebreaker because it's you and I, you know? Yeah, we're throwing the ball around. We're in the bullpen right now. There you go. You know? right. right. Warming up. A little right. warm up. My friend. Right. Yeah, I'm feeling under the weather. I saw Chris was feeling under the weather, too, on Twitter. I saw him talking about that. Yeah, I I, I like how I, I asked him if he had AIDS, and then he said, no, he, ha- he has SIDS, <laughs> which is an even better one. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> but yeah, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm sorry to hear. So it's not, are you sure it's, is it COVID? I, I don't think so. I, I, I will say it feels different than normal, though. Like, I, I'm headachy, a little nauseous. The nausea is coming in waves. It's mostly my head. And I'm not, I don't have a fever, not really any cold symptoms to speak of. I had, it seemed like the cold symptoms were starting to come on and then they just kind of tapered off. So it's it's mostly just a headache, which Mm. is really strange for me. I'm like one of those dudes that gets a headache like once every two years. Like I'm not a headache guy. Yeah, I'm the same. So, but something that will perk us up a little bit, boost our spirits. I found something called a relic. Oh, can't wait to share this with you. Please. Now, dad had given this to me pretty recently, I think. He was, this has been in storage at our various homes, childhood homes for years. It is my sixth grade writing journal. Excellent. Dude. Is it awesome? It's the most insane. I can't even, I can't even wait to read these things. I don't know what I was thinking. Like, I don't know if I thought I was like Mark Twain, like I was writing with like a very like tongue in cheek, but I don't think it was tongue in cheek. I think I was actually serious. But when I read you this first passage, Please. you'll get an idea of what I'm talking about. And honestly, this book would provide opening fodder for the show for like a year. It's amazing. <laughs> and let me just show you, first of all, I don't know if you guys could see if it shows up on camera. For, for it will. It will. It doesn't for us because we have low quality, but it will show up for the audience. Too. Look, Look at, that. at that cursive. I mean, it's sideways. There's so many comments in here about my teachers saying, like, I would love to read this, but I can't, I can't understand your yeah, hand, Kurt, right? you, you took after dad's, like, you know, kind of. Dad's pretty good, but there are words, like, where I'm like, I know what you're saying here, but I don't see this word. Right. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. And he could still write in cursive. I completely lost it. But of oh course. no, I can't. I can't. Even, dude, I can't even sign my name in cursive anymore. Like because my signature is literally just truncated to CM over time. <laughs> so sometimes I like try to write my name, you know, like with those with those flowing oh, or dude. like you said with the sharp ones, because, yeah, I really loved those sharp ones where it would curve so much. It was at like a 45 degree angle, like everything. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> Dad held on to it, though. Give him props. Oh, yeah. You a know? lot of older people did, I think. Yeah. All right. So this passage I'm going to read to you guys now from my sixth grade writing journal is describe your best friend. Okay. Oh, geez. My best friend is a kid named John. He lives across the street from me and we are both in the sixth grade. We share the same interests. We both collect toys as a hobby. We are both into the same music and we both like girls a lot, <laughs> a lot in written in all caps and parentheses. As soon as we are allowed to date, we plan on going double dating a lot with our girlfriends. We are both in my club, and I totally forgot about this, called The Cobras, with two <laughs> other kids. Our club has been in existence for about two and a half years. It is a fighting club. <laughs> it is a fighting club. It is a fighting. You're ahead of your time. Holy shit. And John probably has the best skills physically. <laughs> the Cobras. Uh, now, listen, I'm here to tell you. I forgot about the Cobras. Of course, named after the iconic G.I. Joe Cobras, right? I'm here to tell you. There you go. The Cobras was not a fighting club. In any way, shape, or form. There was never any fighting associated with the Cobras. <laughs> so you just lied about that. What we really mostly did was make flags, cool flags out of paper, and then put them like on our snow forts or in like whatever makeshift treehouse thing we were building that oh, weekend. Cool. And, but mostly we would just pose really cool with Star Wars guns and lightsabers for Polaroids. That's what we did all day long. We would just really strike cool poses like I was Darth Vader flanked by my two stormtroopers on the mm -hmm. side like we would just pose really cool where are, the, where, are the, where are those polaroids i wonder i you know what dude those would be priceless and we you did have to uh karaoke we did a lot of um van halen karaoke oh okay cool yeah in tommy's basement you, you that have was to get in touch with you got to get in touch with these guys man well actually i i, I told you i'm i have to get back to him but uh or he has to get back to me i think but i talked to john DePaulo. yes uh, i know yeah yeah yeah. who's the john you're talking about jo to john see johnny d See if we can get him on the show, and uh, yeah, Tommy Janacchio. I want uh, I want Tommy on the the show, and I want to offer wow. him copious amounts of money for his toy collection <laughs> as well. Very good. That's awesome. Very nice. Oh, it's always a little weird to find because I I have things like that in the garage that that dropped off for me, but I I haven't gone through it yet. Although we have boxes and boxes of everyone's stuff here, or not boxes, but a few boxes of like everyone's like report cards, and so I have all. That oh, stuff. dude. So I'm going to try to like separate everything out in a different boxes so we can just give everyone stuff back to them. Yeah, I think that'd be cool. Priceless relics. Indeed. Well, what's going on with you? No sixth grade writing journal on your end. What's going on? No, in your no. Neck of the woods. I don't know if I was writing in sixth grade. <laughs> you know, I have a weird one for you. Let me take you on a little journey. So at night, uh -huh. Micah and I watch a lot of YouTube like in bed. And then we watch also like random episodes of Always Sunny or something. And we were watching the Always Sunny episode about uh, them going to see Warren Buffett and they were talking and, and I, I don't know if you remember the, a lot of the show is about how they hope they play Pina Colada like Escape but that's not his song it's um, Rupert Holmes's song so it's about how like Charlie hopes that they they play it but like you know Dennis is like they're not gonna play it 
And uh, so anyway, that's I'm telling you that because I was like, I, you know, I really like that song. So I, I added it to my Spotify playlist and then I. They, they make a comment about like what the, do you ever listen to the lyrics of the song? And I'm like, oh, OK, so I I went and I listened to the lyrics and I don't know if you're I'm sure you're familiar with the song, but it's a really fascinating, very simple song about okay. a married couple cheating on each other. I never knew that. And I wanted to bring it up because I can see I want people to go listen to this song. You'll know it when you hear it. It's called Escape by Rupert Holmes. And, you know, it's like, if you like pina coladas, you know, classic. like, so it's when I was listening to the lyrics, I, I could see it and I see it in my head. It's such a linear and illustrative song. And he says, I was tired of my lady. We've been together too long, like a worn out recording of a favorite song. So while she lay there sleeping, I read the paper in bed. And in the personal columns, there was this letter I read. If you like pina coladas, blah, blah, blah. Now, the, the hook of the song is that he writes back to the person in the in the newspaper and then they in the third verse he goes and meets this woman at the bar to find that it is is his wife who is trying to cheat on him no yeah what yeah that's like so like his so his wife puts the letter in the newspaper that he's reading and trying to like get away from his wife by responding to this letter and the last verse is awesome because he's like I like pina colada. Like he, he says, I didn't know you like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain. I didn't know, blah, 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 blah. And what's cool about it is, in my opinion, is that like, you don't really know. Like, are they, do they end like accepting that they don't want to be with each other anymore? Right. Do they end that they didn't realize that they were looking for each other? It's an interesting song. Dude, that's And like I wanted poetry. to just bring that up. Yeah. Is that a 70, is that from the 70s or 80s? 70, 1979. Only album of is Partners that era, I feel like you could tell a story through music like that. And how long have we listened to that song, right? It's like a happy hour song and never know the substance behind it. That's crazy. Yeah, because he says, so I waited with high hopes and she walked in the place. I knew her smile in an instant. I knew the curve of her face. It was my own lovely lady. And she said, oh, it's you. Then we laughed for a moment. And I said, I never knew that's that like, you like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain. Blah, 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 blah. That's a lot more Shakespearean than you would anticipate. Exactly. Right? And I, I was... I was, I've been fascinated with the song for like a week. I listen to it like every day because I'm Dude, like, I can a, just see beautiful. every scene. I see them in bed in the first verse. I see him writing the letter. I see them at the bar. I see what the woman looks like. I don't know. That's it. it you, know what's, you know what's cool about that? I'm thinking the whole time as you're saying you're envisioning this thing. I'm like, is there a music video for this? But hopefully not because it came out before music videos. Right on the cusp though. Right. It was... There, in that 70s era, as you know, there are random music videos. I don't yeah. know where they're from. Like, I think they were just played on TV, maybe one-offs, or they might have been like promotional items. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then, you're right, it wasn't until 1982 or something, the year with we're going to go uh, to with Poltergeist, our topic for today. Yeah, what? so three years later, we find ourselves in 1982. Now, what year, by the way, was your writing journal? Sixth grade. So you're... T- how old are you in sixth, sixth grade? Sixth grade, that had 12? to be... 85 yeah 85 85. okay 85 yeah okay cool so we're three years before that here with poltergeist 1982 now we wanted to do this movie i'm actually gonna i'm gonna have this launched on halloween on patreon nice um you know to kind of give everyone a nice little treat it will only be one day early but but uh, this was on your list. And I, know, I know you have a soft spot for this movie. At I least do. you have a lot of nostalgia for the movie, a lot of memories of the movie. I do, too, just in the sense that I 
on the periphery, what you say is is what I remember, which is that this movie was just on a lot. And actually, we t- we've talked about that recently with Ghostbusters and a few other movies we've done. But I will say that it's another one of these movies where I'm like, I don't remember this, this, you know, specific things happening again towards the end. I'm like, I don't remember this at all. Uh, so it was it was fun to watch. And overall, I think it's a really interesting, moody. And uh, I don't know, it's got some pacing issues, I think, but you think it's a fun, it's a fun, it's a fun film. I think I think Poltergeist is a good movie. It's a good idea for a movie. I don't quite know if it knows what it is. Is it a Steven Spielberg movie, like a thriller <laughs> yeah. kind of or is it a horror movie? I don't I don't really know. Is it for adults or is it for kids? I don't or like, you know, teens. I don't really know. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So talk to me a little bit about Poltergeist, why you wanted to talk about it and and um, your, your, your kind of opening thoughts, 40,000 feet. Yeah, my friend. You know, it, it is an important movie to me because this movie really effed me up as a kid. I'm thinking about 1982. I didn't see it theatrically, obviously. It came out in June. But... It was apparently released on VHS and on HBO, Showtime, Cinemax, whatever there was at that time, somewhere before 82 was out. So I was watching this movie when I was either eight or nine years old. And we've talked about before, our family had Showtime for some reason over the other ones. I'm not sure why they chose Showtime over HBO. It must have been some sort of discounted cable package thing. But I caught this movie probably without even knowing about it, just catching it on TV the first time. And of course it piqued my interest. And I think it helped me understand myself. Like I have that personality. I really do have that personality where horror movies really aren't for me. They get in my head. I can't escape from the ideas. They really scare me. I can't go to sleep at night. I can't walk around by myself at night in the dark, that type of thing. But for some reason I'm compelled to torture myself and watch them. Like I'm really fascinated with them to this day. And Poltergeist was my first one. Like, I remember seeing little snippets of, like, the early Friday the 13th movies, maybe Texas Chainsaw or The Exorcist, but not having really seen those movies. Maybe they were on in Aunt Joni's bedroom or at Grandma and Grandpa's house, or I saw a commercial, or maybe a snippet on uh, on MTV, you know, advertising the movie or whatever. But I never saw a complete horror movie until Poltergeist. Poltergeist was the first horror film I saw as a kid from start to finish from A to Z and you know being eight or nine years old and just being really fascinated with it and disturbed by it but just watching it over and over again I loved it but at the same time I was completely you know completely like disgusted by it and Dana our sister Dana I think had the exact same sort of resonance with the with the movie she was really really intrigued by it and I really wanted to do the topic because I figure a lot of our listeners, maybe even our younger listeners especially, may have missed this movie. And I feel like it's an essential horror movie, and I feel like it's an essential Spielberg movie. And we'll get into the Toby Hooper slash Steven Spielberg dynamic. But I was really excited to talk about it. And I will say, man, this movie still screws with me. It's a pretty fascinating horror movie because I think at its core, 
you have this poor innocent family affected by this thing that's that's completely unasked for they're thrown eventually we'll find out what happens but they're thrown into this thing that they this situation that they never asked for and at the center of that are kids being victimized so i think as a as a kid i was like wow you never saw that you know with the Hayes code in the 70s and 80s even into the 70s and 80s where kids were really like at the center of danger and, and this movie really did that probably the first movie i ever saw like that where you feel really um you really feel for the kids and the kid robbie i think he's eight so he was like my contemporary like I, he was my proxy i kind of saw everything through that character's eyes he kind of reminds I, me of you a little bit just in the i don't it's the hair yeah I think. I think it's the hair the 70s hair maybe even he reminds me even a little bit of Graydon. like it's just the yeah, it's There's the hair. There's something like, there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I always thought that. Even as a kid, I thought that too. You know, I was like, yeah, I kind of feel like that kid's like the West Coast version of myself or something. Yeah. And he's like in a Star Wars and he's, you know, it sensitive. Feels so, that's the other thing. It feels so of the late 70s, early 80s era, you know, with pop culture. And yeah. And, and this movie takes on a lot more dimensions. Haven't seen it now. Haven't, I haven't seen it in a long time. Sitting down to watch it again, how well it holds up, the acting all the Steven Spielberg signatures, the fact that it was a pretty successful blockbuster that year, it didn't rate as high as E.T., which came out the same year, but it all it did very well at the box office. And I was really intrigued, Kyle, to see that it's on a, top, a lot of top 100 lists of greatest horror movies of all time or most scary horror movies of all time. And I'm not really sure if it rates that way for me. Like, it's scary. it was scary for me as a kid, but now I think it's more just fascinating and it's unlike almost any other movie even the ones that are similar to it like amityville horror it has a different tone it's really kind of unique for a horror film yeah it's uh it's an interesting first of all i love what you brought up an interesting look into the late 70s early 80s because i was remarking over and over again as i was watching it i'm like man this this house is awesome and what's cool about it is it's it's high it's a high quality you know as far as hd quality or at least i perceive it as hd quality film where sure it looks good so you kind of see it in a contemporary lens even though it is 40 years old and there's a lot of really cool stuff like the just the the kitchen tile the really the huge emphasis on pinks and reds and the fluffy carpets and the textured vertical wallpapers which reminds me of dr Perez's office a lot <laughs> a lot of gold trim and like the shell lamps and so yeah there's a lot of cool stuff there it's interesting with this film I'm realizing as I'm we're watching some of these movies, some of these scary movies is they don't they don't hold up as pieces of horror in my mind, like watching. What do we do? Nightmare on Elm Street recently was cool. It's fun to watch that. See Johnny Depp and all these random characters, but it's not very scary. In fact, we were talking about how, like, I don't think that they enhance the scariness. I think he probably gets better later. And with Poltergeist. I'm not sure. I, I don't know that I, I, I know that it's described I and mean, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page now and like, yes, it is obviously a horror film, but it doesn't really feel like one in a lot of ways. The movie's a little strange, not in a bad way, but there's a lot of weird stuff in this movie that doesn't make any sense. Like a lot of it makes no sense. If you can suspend this. all of that, though, it's a pretty good ride and certainly happy to have watched it but when i think about movies that truly scare me and i think of ari oster and stuff like that they, oh my gosh sure just things with a lot of tension and i do think that that's what poltergeist actually has in the beginning is 
there is a weird tension that it doesn't even feel like a horror movie at all for a while. Then it feels like an embracing, almost like a supernatural movie where they're embracing the nature of it. But then it becomes this horror movie. But then there's like this utter destruction and all this stuff. But then it doesn't seem like anything's really affected. Like no one has noticed anything about them. And it's kind of disjointed in that way, the more I'm talking about it. But nonetheless, what do you think about the two parents who I, I think are the main characters? I know that people look at the kids as, you know, especially the little girl as being, you know, a main character. But I'm curious what you think about Craig T. Nelson in this. You know, Joe Beth Williams. These are great actors, actually. I think they put on a really good performance and they feel weird and forbidden to me, too. Like, I remember I do remember the, the I remember very vividly the when they're smoking joints in their room. And <laughs> I remember that as a kid and being like, wow, this is so adult. And through a historic lens, it seems so interesting because obviously people are always smoking weed, but you don't really associate that with 1982. You associate that with it's the true. 60s, maybe a little bit of the 70s and you associate it like with the 90s. But by 72, or I'm sorry, 82, I don't really feel like it was like a, a drug of choice, but clearly it was. And I liked that. And it felt very unspielberg in a way because I'm like, wow, this is. It's pretty, you know, it's pretty crazy. The kid comes in a few minutes later, he's crawling on the bed over the weed and stuff. It's just an interesting <laughs> movie. But what do you think about these two parents, the, the characters and the, the performances here? Well, you know, what? the first thing I'm looking at them and I'm as I'm watching this time, and I'm like, holy shit, because they're supposed to be 32 years old in the movie. And of course, as an eight-year-old, I'm looking at them like, oh, they look like my mom and dad. They, they're just believable old people. Mm -hmm. Now, they're 15 years, I'm 15 years their senior watching this. And it was striking to me, especially with Jo Beth Williams, how young she looks to me. Like, wow, she's, I mean, we talked about her in Kramer versus Kramer, I think, that she was an attractive, not only is she a talented actress, I think she's awesome in this, but she's really, she was really attractive as well. Yeah. And, you know, these Definitely. two are really the grounding agents for all this zaniness. They're both, they both give really good performances in such a crazy movie. I mean, this, this is a, a pretty crazy idea, right? This whole, this thing's happening at first, this threat or the seeming threat is kind of innocuous. It's almost like a circus act. The things that are going on, like the ghosts are like entertaining them. And then a half hour, 40 minutes in, it starts to get, it starts to get real and the threat grows. And it's cool to see these two, their performances, their relationship together is awesome. I think they have great on-screen chemistry, these two. And so as, as husband and wife, they're cool. They work. But also as parents, you know, and you get to see them as normal parents in the beginning, first half hour of the film, they just live in a normal suburban California life. And then you get to see them thrust into this situation where they're protectors and trying to fight for their daughter back and trying to figure out what the hell's going on in their house and trying to save their family from this you know, paranormal entity that's obviously, uh, you know, malevolent in some way. And it's cool. They really do ground it. And they both give great performances. I love the way Joe Beth Williams sort of becomes like the unquestioning protector. Like she will, she will do anything for her kids. Because at first it seems like, all right, she's like kind of like the hot trophy stay-at-home wife, super cute, maybe a little ditzy. You don't really know what to expect once shit hits the fan. How is she going to react to that? You know, is she going to come with the substance or is she going to, you know, fade to the back? But the fact that she kind of steps up and takes charge and then the father character is really interesting too in that he's not only is he kind of um, in a way involved because his real estate development company built these homes that they live in. 
unbeknownst to him, he's not a part of the problem. He doesn't know what they did, but he also be, kind of becomes the cynic. He starts to play the cynic in that he's trying he's trying to protect his family. He's trying to step up, but he's also not really sure what to believe and how much he believes and what he uh, what part of this he believes. So it's really they're really interesting performances that move in and around the different story points that I really think carry the movie through and make it um, not only believable, but a little emotional. Maybe that's a parent talking, but like there's parts of this movie where either the dad character is kind of speechless and he doesn't know what to say, or he's kind of talking under his breath or the Joe Beth Williams character, the mom is, you know, screaming bloody murder and you believe it. You know, it's like there's almost parts of her performance in this and I don't want to overstate it. I'm a fan of this movie, but it's like, holy shit, has she actually gone through this? Because I believe everything she, like the way she's yelling and screaming and trying to make deals and, you know, saying, you know, trying to obviously frighten to death, but that courage, that mother's courage coming through to protect her young ones, you know? It's so cool, dude. I was really surprised to see how well the acting held up. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up too, because I was remarking to Micah that, I enjoyed the their performances, of course, Joe Beth Williams, Craig T. Nelson, but I also wanted to give it up to uh, Beatrice Strait and Zelda Rubenstein, who are like the two. Well, Beatrice Strait plays Doctor Martha Lesh, who is I, I think this character is awesome, and then Zelda Rubenstein plays Tangina, I guess Barons, and I actually really dug these performances too. And I was thinking about you because I know how much you like character actors like that. Yeah, and I feel like what's cool about both of those characters is they have like these dialogues these monologues i should say that each go for minutes and some of them are like one shot pretty much and i felt a lot of pot like a lot of good acting energy in this movie i felt like everyone maybe not the kids so much although they were fine but certainly the adults i thought brought it what did you think about these uh these two female older female characters that i think really brought something special they're awesome i mean the the doctor Lash character is really cool because at first, you know, they go, the family's kind of beside themselves. They don't know what to do. They go to these paranormal investigators, which is kind of like a hokey, as they explain, like unlicensed kind of like uh, otherworldly thing that's not really socially accepted. And you got, you kind of get the sense, she's obviously in charge, the Lesh character, and you kind of get the sense of like, all right, she's going to be a cold and sort of um, by the book maybe maybe bookish and you know like a sci- the typical scientist but the compassion that she has especially for the mom character and what the family's going through is kind of a cool surprise like in not remembering that part of the story the fact that she forms a bond with this family besides trying to help them with her by doing what she does with her profession or her hobby as she calls it like the fact that she sort of makes a bond with this family and is really trying to with all her heart help them out which is really cool and then her calling in the medium character, the uh, Zelda Rubenstein character. She's such a fascinating actress. I was reading movie reviews at the time. I was reading Siskel and Ebert and some others. And one movie reviewer was saying, like, the movie was so hokey and contrived and sort of this popcorn-y ghost story that wasn't really grounded in anything. But she was saying the, the Tangina Barron's character was the one thing that made it feel believable and that's an interesting take she's really really good she's a little she comes in she's a little eccentric she's obviously a little strange you could buy that she could be in touch with these other dimensions and this sort of paranormal world 
the way she acts. She doesn't act like a like a regular human being. You know what I mean? She's right. she's different. She acts a little different. But I mean, besides her look and her voice, um, it's really a cool package. I mean, it's one of those things with this movie that there's so many. I think pop culture icons that spring from this movie, right? There's the little girl back view with the long blonde hair with her hands up on the staticky television. There's the Zelda Rubenstein character, this Tangina character. There's, you know, obviously the ghost, the, the, the stake crawling on the counter. There's so many pop culture icon moments. It's interesting what you say, Kyle, not to go back, but that it doesn't really feel like your prototypical horror movie. And I don't think it does. It feels more like, interestingly enough, it feels more like an Indiana Jones movie, right? And then coming off the heels of Raiders only a year earlier, and then Temple of Doom would only be a couple years into the future in 84, feels more like that. Like sensationalist, horror, a little bit of gross out, and then mix in all the Spielberg traits, right? Like the slow truck in on the reaction shot. You know, all the pop culture references in the background kids the way the neighborhood looks i mean it's very similar i mean et uh (laughs) right i mean elliot and gertie's house could be three doors down well that's it's so funny because that's what i was writing in my notes was this looks like et and i actually didn't know much about i knew et came out in 1982 i knew spielberg directed et and i knew et or i knew poltergeist was co-written and produced by Spielberg but I didn't realize that the movies came out a week apart and that and that like there was a lot of dispute about his role in the movie and that he might have been like basically and I think we've talked about this in the past that yeah he was kind of a de facto director and it just couldn't call himself that in the film and you could see a lot of that I totally agree the neighborhood the the establishing shots the kids with the RC cars the really weird sports scene with the beer it's like that's what's so interesting about this movie though is that I think it does a really nice job. I think it's almost masterful in that it doesn't, even though the weird American anthem Iwo Jima TV sound off thing that they do in the beginning, apart from that, and that's just to set the stage apart from that, the movie, it's like, when is this? It it builds this tension because you know why you're there. And Micah had said that to me. She was like, you you know, you're going to this movie to see something and you're kind of waiting uh, for, for things to pop off. And I think that they do a really interesting job of that. But talk to me a little bit about Spielberg here, because obviously you had brought up Toby Hooper already, and I'm a huge fan of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think that movie is fucking awesome. And and when it was remade and came out when I was in college, I I remember going and seeing it because I I just love the, I I love that idea. I think it's horrifying. It comes from a horrifying era. 1974 is, for some reason, a movie from that era is just, it's scarier. It's being alone. No cell phones, no computers, no yes. internet. Good point. It's it's that stuff we bring up over and over again. So I really, really like that. And him being involved in this obviously is a big plus. But this does feel, like you said, very Spielbergian, right? Right on down, I think, to the the special effects and very ET like, almost comically in the constant Star Wars references, which feels so authentic to 1982 but so heavy-handed like especially in this movie dude's got like the hoth play set he's got the snow speeder he's got oh, yoda dude. in bed he's got the darth vader character or figure holder tie fighter all this stuff it's just everywhere and i'm like wouldn't it have been cooler if it was just a tie fighter but now like you move you go to the little girl and she's chewing on a luke skywalker figure <laughs> you're the the closet opens up and the tie fighters tumbling without Flying one of its around. wings towards it's like a little much. So it's a I, lot. I, 
but anyway, talk to me a little bit about your feelings on Spielberg with this movie, because I know you're a fan. We like to make fun of Spielberg. I'm a fan of Spielberg, too. Very, refer- you know, very. I-, I feel like he's one of those enigmatic talents. Yeah. Can't deny that. I feel like he's imagine how bad some movies would have been without him involved when you consider some of the people that were involved. Like imagine George Lucas pursuing Indiana Jones without. Yes. Steven by Spielberg. himself. Oh, man. Or so I think else. I think Spielberg saved us. I think sometimes George Lucas helped in the other way as well. I don't think he gets any credit for that. But yeah, that's true. I think that's true, too. But and he, it's because he's more fan servicey. And I think. Whatever. I don't want to get into George Lucas. He has nothing to do with this. So talk to me about Spielberg. Yeah, the Star Wars send-ups are a little much, actually, because you think about, like, all right, he's being, you know, he's paying uh, homage, send-ups to his friend, maybe trying to help him out, little, uh, you know, advertising, but it was not needed. Empire was already out. Star Wars figures were, like, the biggest toy, the biggest toy line maybe ever at that point. And, yeah, it's interesting how, you know, how much of that is in this film, even more so than E.T., I mean, it's fun. I love seeing it. I love it. It's, it's very up to the minute, right? Like you're saying, it's all the Empire gear. They got the Tauntaun back there. It's not just like random Star Wars stuff. It's like up to the moment stuff. And that Darth Vader case, by the way, can we talk about that for a second? That Darth Vader bust that was the action figure case. Yeah, I love With the that. red eyes. That's not a thing. That thing oh, was not- all black. Yeah, I was going to say, I had the, uh, you had the black one and I had the 3PO one because they read The 3PO one, them. that's right. Yeah. yeah. But... I wonder. So, oh, if so that, the red eye, the red, the red eye version might say, be a okay. prototype because oh, I think cool. that was an Empire line toy. It wasn't a Star Wars toy. Cool. It, I think it came out for the sequel. So I wonder I if that's a prototype. That. I looked on eBay to see if that was a thing. I'm like, I know that's not a thing, and it's not, not a thing. I think that was like a one-off or a prototype, or maybe they just customized it. I don't, I don't know. It's kind of weird. I love those figure that. hold. I don't know why when I loved those things for some reason, like figure holders when they came with the stickers you put them in oh, the little so, case so and where it was very satisfying for people like you and me i think you know like oh it's it, the best it didn't give us a it, it was kind of annoying because there was nowhere to put accessories and stuff like that and then i had the gi joe cases where you just dumped the figures into the thing and that was just easier but there was something about those carrying cases that i really loved and when they power the force 2 line came out and they released 3po i was all over that because i was like oh man i want one of these so bad so cool and then you realize it doesn't hold like anything basically you ah. have like way too many figures for it and it's such a good way to like you know put your figures in there give them a home but also like figure out like i still need this one this one sort of like go through your checklist i, I gotta get this one for christmas so it was so cool. i love the action figure cases man they were so cool but it was, it was awesome to see all that stuff in there but spielberg i have to say like it's interesting to go back to 1982 and think about it from that time period because he was already very powerful in hollywood and he was already very sought after, right? He had done Jaws. He had done Close Encounters. He had done Raiders already. He did 1941. So he was already a bankable dude. And the fact that he tapped Toby Hooper to direct off of the merits, of course, of, of um, Texas Chainsaw, which everybody loved and everybody was horrified of. Now, Toby Hooper did a few other flicks as well. I think he did a movie called Fun House. I've never seen it. A couple other things, but he was basically, he had basically made a name for himself off of Texas Chainsaw, which is still, I think, considered one of the top, one of the greatest horror movies of all time. Yeah, gotta be top 10, I would assume. So I guess initially Spielberg had a deal that he was directing E.T. and couldn't direct another picture at the same time. So he had to tap another director, tap Toby Hooper thinking, okay, this is a horror script. Initially was to be penned by 
uh, Stephen King, which it didn't turn out being penned by Stephen King. But they had this whole initial horror package planned, and Toby Hooper was a part of that. And it's funny. I can see some, if just looking at his thin, up to that point, filmic body of work leading up to Poltergeist, you could see a little bit of Toby Hooper in there. You could see a little bit of Toby Hooper in the shots, um, the shot composition and the framing and stuff, but mostly it's very Spielbergian. And again, it reminds me very much of Raiders. And some actors have even come out and said, I think, in fact, Zelda Rubenstein came out and said that it, she was never directed by Toby Hooper on set. It was all Spielberg. I think she even made a, like an offhanded, off-the-cuff, like, mean-spirited comment saying, like, Toby Hooper couldn't direct his way out of a wet paper bag type of thing, <laughs> which was interesting. Jesus. And that, I think you? a lot of people, I think he was on set, and he was probably relegated to an AD. I mean, you're on the set with Spielberg, right? Like the I mean, second, yeah, the second crew. He has the, it's like Spielberg, even, like, you could see these very Spielbergian ideas in this, right? You, the sliding across the floor, the chair shot in the kitchen, the, la- the final shot of the film, which I think is really clever and super memorable, where they go to the hotel room, beat, perfectly timed, door slams back open, push the TV out. That's all Spielberg. I mean, that's a Spielbergian... You know, this movie has so many of those little imprints of Spielberg that I love. I love it. You know, I think he's one of the cl- most clever dudes. And I think he was also very involved, as he often is, all the way back to the storyboard process. You know, he was coming up with this movie on a beat by beat basis and i think a lot of that shows i think and i think a lot of the horror feels like an indiana jones film it really just does the gross out humor the scares the jump scares all that kind of stuff so i don't know it's a shame and toby hooper's been very diplomatic about it over the years in interviews i was watching a couple of accounts and apparently steven spielberg even apologized to toby hooper in a variety magazine I think at the time, sometime in 82 saying like, we love your work on the show just to kind of smooth over, smooth, smooth over the situation a little bit with, I think people were generally of the mind that Toby Hooper was relegated to like a gopher <laughs> type of thing, right, 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 right. which is a shame. Yeah, it is. And it's, I like when people are, are magnanimous about things like that. Although I think if you're Toby Hooper, even, you know, somewhat well known, I, I, he hasn't done a movie that I think anyone's really cared about in a long time. Uh, I think he's deceased now anyway, but you oh, can't did he win. Pass? He, I didn't even realize I that. I think so. I think he might have. Yeah, no, he, yeah, he died in 2017. Okay, so, not too long ago. But you can't win against Spielberg. I don't even know. What are you going to do? I mean, can you imagine how, Spiel, how Spielberg can just poison? I mean, I'm not saying he would. I don't know his, his personality, but can you imagine right. how he could poison the well for you? Oh, I mean, I, I don't. I don't even... So I was also aghast in some horror, although I feel bad about this when I saw executive producer at the end. Kathleen Kennedy and I was like yes. oh my god she has been around talk for about a long, long. I, she has been in that camp since day one it's incredible it's amazing yeah. and, and still I was, going I was explaining to Mike I'm like do you know who Kathleen Kennedy is because she's not really into movies or Star Wars at all I'm like yeah, yeah. Kathleen Kennedy is kind of he, she's like the longtime producer with Spielberg very famous for that with George Lucas and in that whole camp but is kind of the person who's been pinned with ruining <laughs> Star Wars. Star Wars. And like today, 40 years later. And, and still it's kind of working. Dude, can you imagine? I got to give Kathleen credit. How, how rich she is. <laughs> for what? I mean, how she's still working. You know, like she could have stopped working 25 years ago and been more than set for life. The fact she must really love it. 
I mean, give her yeah, that. I would agree. I would agree. You know what I mean? She's she's yeah. older now, and she's still going. She's still in the trenches, man, which is pretty pretty crazy. She's still one of the big tastemakers, you know, when it comes to all that kind of stuff. I guess really under Disney now and everything that branches off from Disney. But, yeah, that's a, that's an amazing for me to think about. Although, yeah, of course, she is the scapegoat. She is the Star Wars scapegoat. Yeah, I was like, she's just a... Un- probably unfairly notorious but we we like to we have to blame someone for things the buck st- <laughs> the buck does stop somewhere i mean i don't know where to. it would stop if not if not with her at this point if she's if she's uh if she has the last the last call on everything if she has final cut you know so we often talk about the nature of horror on our show about what scares us and i often bring up that there are certain there are just certain rails you touch and it's scary to me Religion is one of them. Now, you brought up The Exorcist before, which is a truly scary movie. Still, we obviously did Rosemary's Baby already. The Omen we have to do at some point. There are others we have to do as well. By the way, I, I don't know if you've been he- hearing. There's a, a show called The Midnight Mass, which is supposed to be people. Uh, many, like 10 people have come probably recommended to me. This, really? At this point. Super scary. About, it's about like some Catholic sect that like goes off the deep end, I think. What? And it's supposed to be like really good and people oh, have been have thinking about me and watching it. I never but uh, I don't know what it's on, but, but uh, another thing we talk about often is children and the nature of children. Like with Rosemary's baby, the child represented, the child wasn't even in the movie. The child represented like the spawn. Right. And in this movie, the children are all alive, but really only one of them, the three of them, although two of them pass away later on in real life. But the little girl is kind of the key to it all. In fact, I think the iconic shot of Poltergeist is the very movie poster, which is the black poster, really awesome trim with the TV small in the middle and her silhouette watching it from behind. So she's obviously the center of the horror. And that ticks one of those boxes for me because they say something interesting where yeah, it's the Zelda Rubenstein character says it's all the things we don't understand. Uh, it lies to her. It tells her things only a child understands. And there's something scary about that, about it's like creepy. the yeah, about the the unwitting participation of this little girl in this pretty evil thing, but not realizing that, in fact, the house is buried on a cemetery and. So I want to talk to you a little bit about that. What do you think about the nature of the horror, the story idea? Okay. I, I, I often bring up and I think about a lot about how you and I would tell each other ideas for stories or things we've heard and Ray Bradbury stuff and all the things we read and just scare the shit out of each other. And I wonder if a house being built on an ancient burial ground, or not ancient, it's actually maybe from the 1900s, the 1800s, right. has been kind of run over and built upon. And my answer to this is that it is very scary, but not in that setting. It's too suburban. Okay. And that's one of the things that makes the movie break to me. And we'll talk about that later. But what do you think about the idea, the general idea that I guess the treatment that Spielberg had about a house, this, this kind of hotshot builder has a house in a beautiful up and coming neighborhood that is haunted. And they actually say that the difference is between a haunting and a poltergeist and all of that, and that they, they have this poltergeist because of the building nature, and they don't know, and all of that. I'm just curious what you think about about that. Just like we think about with 
Jason with the the, the camp, sure, or when we think about sure. Freddy with the dreams. The poltergeist, that's what this is about. So Yeah, no, absolutely. What do you think about that as being a central kind of horror feature for this? It's interesting what you say about the idea being scary, but the setting not carrying out that element of being frightening enough because you have this new, relatively new, upper middle class suburban neighborhood, you know, a lot of houses, three car garage, picturesque, young, successful people. Yeah, it's a, it's a really great point. I'll tell you where the horror started for me as a kid with this movie. You kind of got to channel an eight-year-old, nine-year-old Dagan watching this in 1982. Very clever. First of all, after this movie came out, you could not look at a staticky television and not think of Poltergeist, number one. It was a, all, all of a sudden, a staticky television was the scariest thing in the world. Now, we don't really see staticky televisions anymore. It's not a thing. But... Growing up in the 80s, staticky televisions, you know, when you turned on the TV to go to VCR, it would go staticky. There was not one time I saw that staticky fuzz on the TV and not thought of Poltergeist. It's that iconic, you know, like you were saying with the Heather O'Rourke character and the little blonde girl and her hands up on the TV and the iconic movie poster. But that staticky TV is where it starts. And here's what's crazy about that. And here, here's what's kind of... Um, Spielbergian about that and how he gets into our heads and I think you could even argue like he kind of set the stage for guys that would do it better and scarier like Ari Oster later on but here's what Spielberg gets us right the thing about the TV shutting off at night at midnight one o'clock in the morning whatever it was in your area and that TV would stop basically between late night hours and five or six in the morning and it would play, often play the national anthem with some sort of image or some sort of test pattern and then go off and be staticky. And I grew up with that. Now, not that I was ever really up that late, save on New Year's Eve or something, but there were certainly scenarios growing up where I would be staying at grandma and grandpa's overnight on the weekend, right? Mom and dad went on a date out to the city, watching TV. Everybody would fall asleep on the couch, grandma and grandpa, me and Dana and Allie. We'd fall asleep in, in front of the TV and I would wake up be completely dark in grandma's living room except for the light of the television everybody had fallen asleep and it was that static and now that was horrifying because of poltergeist so this normal everyday thing becomes this catalyst for you to get frightened off your ass you know what i mean like this normal thing that you were just used to that was an everyday thing that you would have to deal with becomes this frightening thing so the horror starts there and then i think what made this movie so catchy for me and the fact that I wanted to like, I wanted to understand it and I wanted to, I wanted to keep watching it over and over again was because you're seeing this thing happen to this family, right? It's not like Friday the 13th. It's not a slasher film. It's not happening to a bunch of teenagers at a summer camp. It's happening in a place like, you know, you know what I mean? A home in a neighborhood in a development with a mom and dad and kids and neighbors that you're arguing with, and other kids running around the blocks with their RC cars. It felt realistic in a way, even though it's very popcorn-y and very unbelievable in many ways and very signature Spielberg. It felt like a world that I knew, and I think that's what made it really scary. You know what I mean? It was like, all right, this could ha so this could happen to us then? You know, mom and dad, is this? do you think we're on an Indian burial ground here? Like that type of thing. Like it got in your head and it was relatable or at least it felt relatable to me as a kid. And I think that's what made me so, why it really got its hooks in me and, and just wouldn't let go. I, I mean, I watched this thing 
I'm not even exaggerating. I watched this thing 25 times in the 80s, at least. And, you know, I, it was the type of thing, too, where I would stay on, watch bits and pieces, watch the, you know, the gross-out scene with the guy peeling his face off and the maggot <laughs> chicken drumstick and all that kind of stuff. That stuff fucked me up. You know what I mean? All of a sudden, it was like the neighbor's garbage can because they didn't use proper garbage bags and, you know, the garbage men come on a Saturday. All of a sudden, there's maggots crawling out of the garbage. I automatically would go back to... Everything was poltergeist. You know what I mean? So for me, the horror started there and was really got its hooks in. And then the religious aspect, like you said, then it became about church and whatever I knew about being a young Catholic at eight or nine years old and the fact of like, you know, this other dimension and angels and demons and the fact of like now understanding like these were the undead or people that maybe didn't know they were dead or some, some, some entities living in between the living and the passing and wanting to cling to this little girl because as it's explained, like they miss the, you know, those things in life that they can't have anymore. And she's a proxy and they, you know, for her, it's for them, it's like whatever kind of comfort they could derive from that, which is really creepy shit. And of course, like, again, not only is little Carol Ann victimized, but the whole family is, they didn't ask for this. It just happens to them. And we, of course, we have to get into why there's 300 other houses and it's just their house. Well, this is exactly this is exactly where the movie falls apart to me because. Okay, talk to me. And it doesn't fall apart because it's fun, but it, it break the movie's broken because it, and it actually is from the very beginning. We were talking about the RC car scene with like his friends. That's like, why would you do that to that guy? First of all, like it's it's almost sets it off as like this <laughs> weird, like, am I supposed to be taking this serious? Am I? And then he runs in with the beer. The beer is just squirting everywhere. It's like, this would never happen. Can you, like, can you imagine? imagine? Dude, pe- pe- people be like, what the fuck are you doing? I know, doing? the Stephen Freeland character is totally fine. He's like, come on, move. <laughs> yeah. It's, so it, I like that it starts off with a, I, I, this kind of bouncy cadence that belies its, its true intent, which is to scare you. Sure. But there's so much in the movie that doesn't make sense because of the setting. Like, this movie would just make much more sense even in a neighborhood like the one we grew up in on Marie Court, right? We grew up in like, it's like a cul-de-sac with six houses. Two of them are like set back. We, everyone's on like an acre or so around each other, three quarters of an acre, maybe that's much more believable because then you could be like, okay, this is a specific burial ground. It is realistic that no one would notice all the weird shit happening here. You have a fence, you have woods, right? And privacy, but that's kind of the thing I couldn't escape in this movie is is where the fuck is everybody? And it made me almost wonder, like, is it even happening now? The answer is, of course, it is. But at the end, you see the house and then moving and then the house folds in this weird thing. They see this like, but like, I'm like, where is the tree that was supposed to be outside the house? Like, where is the pool supposed to go? Like, no, well, the tree, the, the, the kid eating tree. Yeah. Like, where was it supposed to be? Like, where would it go in that small yard? Oh, in that right? small like, where, thing. Right. Where it where would is or where would the pool be in the small yard? In other words, the house is really cool. But I love that house. There's something off about the way that they even present the the geography such that when they go to their neighbor's houses, like that's a weird scene because they go to the neighbors like wouldn't the neighbors be like, what the fuck is wrong with those people? You would at least assume something was wrong. like They were on something. Right. But and then they obviously pop up later. But no one notices that this tree is swallowing this boy. No one notices that the little girl's gone. Maybe she hasn't shown up to school or something or like where her friend, she has some something to go to. And then they don't bring no cops. 
No cops. And then, that's true. Great, great point. And so it becomes this thing where it's like your little girl. And that's another point where they could have like raised the tension by bringing in the police or some sort of authority figure as well and being like, where is your kid? And that police thinking that it's them that did something to her. And yeah. then they get in touch with these academics basically that come and investigate for them right. and figure it out. Like just a little, little touch there. But I was really brought out of it by just the spatial awareness of the movie. Like there's, there's just, it's just weird. It doesn't make any sense. Everyone notices at the end when things are exploding and everyone, but like you said, why is it just this place? And they do explain that it's like this portal or whatever, but people would certainly notice and that I don't want to harp on that, but it did kind of ruin the horror of the movie. And I just, it makes me wonder why he insisted on setting it there because I don't think setting it there made any sense. In fact, even the interaction with the neighbor would have been cooler because maybe they run over there, the neighbors or whoever, and they won't notice things, but now they're paying closer attention. So that at the end they come because they notice something is going on or whatever. There's just, I, I don't know. I was, a little, I, I was a little curious about that. So what do you think about the setting and kind of the unbelievable, like the, the tenor of the movie and, and how you, in, in my mind, I, I'm not sure. Like there's a tornado in the background. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's the one that takes their the house. Tree. gets totally fucked up. <gasps> And they just and also they just seem totally fine, like almost blase. Like you say, they accept it. They're playing or almost like accepting it to go there like as if their daughter, like they're not worried about it. Just the, there's a lot of unbalance there. It's almost if it was cut out of order or something. But yeah, yeah sometimes I here. think that with this movie, like thing, uh scenes might have been spliced in or edited in or maybe even rearranged. That is it. That is interesting that you say that. I think I understand all your points about the setting for sure. It kind of flies in the face of, of reason in a lot of ways. But the one thing that I do like about the setting and maybe the intention there was to paint a horrific picture for the average viewing audience. A lot of us live in typical suburban neighborhoods with houses on top of houses and blocks and blocks of houses and these families, you know, blocks of families and congested areas, right, where a suburban area, a rural area rather, is generally more scary because of the isolation. Like you're saying, even a little cul-de-sac on six acres uh, with six houses like we grew up with. And then around that was a, you know, a farm here and there and an older home and then nature preserve. So there were large pockets of, you know, of nothing. And that makes it scarier when you're isolated, when you're far, further away from people and technology and all that kind of stuff. But saying like, I feel like the movie's almost saying like, you should be scared of this too suburban people 90 percent of this audience like you're not immune to this because you don't live like in middle america in some rural pocket where there's like three phones you know like an old horror typical old horror setup where it would be like there's no cars there's no phones there's no police you know it's like a one horse town type of thing and it's flipping that on its head and saying this could happen to your suburban neighborhood you know that type of thing so that that i guess the idea was to make that scary and i love also, what you said about the the film having a, a very Goonies-esque, jaunty, upbeat tone as we lead in. You know, we see the family eating breakfast, and we see the construction workers mm. with the pool leering at the daughter, and we see... Yeah, that was so weird. That <laughs> yeah. is weird, because she's 16. Yeah, and I was, and the daughter's just like, or the mom's just watching through the window, and I'm just like, what the... I, that made me feel so cringy, because I'm like, why would you... What? That, you know, it, it just it's just it's just very weird like i just couldn't imagine that even happening I, i'm sure it does but i couldn't even imagine that's Dana's big moment too like that's really yeah. her biggest scene 
Yeah. You know, where she does the, when she where the people do the off. weird, the weird, I don't even know how to do a middle finger, like where they do like the, you know, I, you probably can't see it, but th- this one. Yeah, she does. It's she like, totally why are you doing, like, what is that? Like, just, you know. It's funny. Yeah. I totally forgot about that scene and I forgot how long it went on. Like the way they're leering and like the way she, she's walking her bike and then she stops. She's just the whole hand motion. Like, I totally forgot about that. That was another moment. Like, it feels very Spielberg to me. You know, it's like that whole thing of like, but I like the misdirect involved in the whole thing. Even in the beginning, when the hauntings and the happenings start to take place with the chairs or Caroline, little sweet little Carol Ann with her, her, with her Rams helmet on sliding on her butt across the floor. Like right. at first it feels kind of cute and fun. You know, the parents having fun, smoking weed and all that kind of stuff. And then the way it slowly turns into this, you know, otherworldly paranormal threat. And you're, there's even parts where after some bad shit happens where there's that sort of angelic entity moving down the steps, right? Where it's like, it's kind of all the drapery flowing. And it seems almost like, I remember as a kid thinking it was uh, Glinda, the good witch from um, Wizard of Oz. Yeah. You know, like that's what's supposed to be. That's like an angel and the way it like, Oh, this maybe this isn't maybe it's just something we don't understand. Maybe it's not malevolent or evil. Maybe it's just something that we don't that we don't fully get. You know, maybe it's just beautiful. And you know, the the film kind of tricks you into that. Like, what is really going on here? Are these kindly spirits? Are they what's gonna happen? But of course it happens with it turns out the way it turns out. And also referring to the beast. And, you know, is that does that mean Satan, because that's what I always thought it meant. You know right. what I mean? So he's involved. Like this is this is heavy shit. This is like tier one evil stuff. Like if, if Satan's on the scene, like this is a serious business. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the movie it it's funny you brought up Goonies because it does. The movie almost feels like Jaws meets Goonies and you know, two Spielberg movies where I think Jaws was much more overtly I haven't seen it in a long time, actually. We should probably do Not it. Not me either. Much much more of a of a foreboding horror movie where this I think was so offbeat that there were things happening in the film that I felt like were happening to serve a gag. And there were multiple things. Like I thought one of the weirdest scenes in the movie was the dude cooking a steak. (laughs) It's like, what? (laughs) Raiding the fridge. I mean that, that brings raiding fridges to next level, a whole new level. Like you are going to take out a, beautiful sirloin steak pop it on a fucking skillet and He's cook it in these people's house you're gonna do that here i mean <laughs> and i feel like it's just they had to figure out a way to have that meat thing right and the the and i just feel like yes that was a little point. clumsy where I, it would have been cooler to just have him drop the the drum you know the drumstick and it's just there are maggots on it and maybe something a little more or he's drinking something out of the fridge and it's full of something like why does he have to take a steak out because you guys had this idea that you wanted a steak to pop out it just i feel like there's clumsy things like that around and i actually think the pool thing is interesting too because you're right like that is a misdirection the pool being dug is like central to the story but it does i feel like there are scenes like the one with the daughter or like when the one when he's just eating like through the window the pool guy is just eating and and where it has to remind you like don't forget the pool is being built don't forget the pool is being dug and Good point. And I feel like th- I feel like there are s- uh, some scenes like that as well. But I did like learning more about how 
the you know the the protagonist the the what is his name I don't even know yet Stephen is like kind of a slick salesman and all of these kinds of things, but has this falling out with the <laughs> with the builder and the builder realizes later on. You, I, I'm kind of curious. What do you think? Ha- I think there is a sequel, like a direct sequel. I haven't watched it, but yeah, there's two and a three. What do you think happens to this dude, this builder? I mean, I'm curious what happens when the camera's off. In other words, like what is your what is your assumption of what what happens here? Because it seems it, it brings back to my mind. I'm like, did this happen? Like, is this really happening in this world? It's where this entire neighborhood is getting torn asunder by grave walking individuals. It just I don't understand where the movie leaves us, I guess. Yeah, it's true. I mean, and it'll go on to do sequels and uh, Heather O'Rourke, o- O'Rourke is in both sequels. I think she passed before the third one even came out. I saw but, that. Him. And they're not as I mean, they're creepy in their own right, but they're not the classic that the first poltergeist is. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, first of all, it's interesting that the Steven character is sort of working for the enemy and he doesn't know it. You know, he doesn't know it for a large chunk of the film. And of course, his boss, you have to go back to a 1980s perspective. His boss, we knew that guy as the Pathmark guy. That was the guy in all the Pathmark commercials. He was like the, the, the face of Pathmark. So he would do when supermarkets did, supermarkets did that. And Pathmark may be a regional supermarket. That may be an East Coast or Northeast thing. I'm not sure. I it think is. We, it just came up on, a sh- on Sacred Symbols a couple of weeks ago. Oh, that's and, funny. And we, we had found out that it, it's out of business. Now. It's done. Yeah. And I think it was already going out in the 90s. But um, he was the face of Pathmark. And I think he was, an a- he was generally an actor as well. Maybe, maybe even a radio guy harkening back. But he's an interesting character because, it tur- you know, as it turns out, of course... They were not, the whole plan was, yes, we know these were, there were burial grounds mixed into these majestic, scenic hillsides and everything like that, but we're moving them. But as it turns out, of course, they were moving the headstones, but leaving the bodies buried in the ground, I'm sure, to save costs, right? This guy's one of the the founding partners of the firm or whatever, this real estate development firm, which they then offer uh, a partner role to Stephen. But it's after Steven already figures out that something is amiss. He doesn't know exactly what's going on at the time, but he knows something is wrong. And they're building the fifth phase of this neighborhood, and it's way up in the hills overlooking everything. And his boss, you know, offers him a plot of land and says, I'm going to move your family up here. How do you like that type of thing? But it's a whole other thing. It's a whole other cemetery. And that brings in all the questions of, wait, what? So, you know, what happened down there? We're, we're in phase one or whatever. So it's interesting that it happens that way. And, that, and now also the boss character, I thought for a second that he died. He gets hit by the flash of light at the end after the house sort of implodes. But then he gets up mm-hmm. and the rest of the people that are hit by the, by the spirit, exploding spirit, they all get up. And it's interesting to think, like, I don't even remember, to be honest with you, Kyle, if he's even a character in the second one. I don't think so, but I'm not sure. He's not. I'm looking at his filmography. He's so he's they don't it. carry on that storyline, but I just love the way it ends for the family. You know the fact, and also the question of with any great haunting story or just the idea of haunting or a poltergeist or a possession in general is like, and they explain the difference of the of the two things in the movie. But will that will will those malevolent spirits stay with you regardless of your location? 
That's what you're worried about in the end with the family. And that's why Steven pushes the TV out of the room and everything like that, which is a great moment. Maybe my favorite moment in the whole film. I thought that was a post credit scene, by the way. I was like, whoa, hmm. shit, did Poltergeist have the, fo- the first post credit scene? I thought the credits rolled and then they showed that. But it, it doesn't. They show it before the, end, the film ends. But, you know, that's the type of thing you're left with for me at the end of the movie is like, all right, is this family in the clear now? Are they safe or are they going to be afflicted by this, by these evil spirits, this possession, this haunting, regardless of where they go? And then, of course, movie two starts to answer those questions for you or there wouldn't be a movie to. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you had brought up earlier, too, that the failure of the Zelda Rubenstein character, like she says, this house is clean, but she's totally wrong. What is that? Yeah, what's that all about? It, it, and the academics, too, they're, it's cool because they do give them all kind of an interesting character, like the the kind of stu- the studious dude, the curious dude, the lazy dude, whatever, the, whatever kind of hybrids they're trying to create. Right. But I don't know. I, I was kind of flummoxed by that, too. I'm like, you didn't do what you said you were going to do. And I think that there are a lot of really cool things where they could have played up more that the inex- the relative inexperience of everyone involved, except maybe the Zelda Rubenstein character. Like, I love the scene where she's like shaking at the table after they saw the bedroom. Oh, so great. And it would be cool if they were all overwhelmed and all didn't know. Because it kind of makes the woman look like she's just lying because she doesn't really know one one thing or the other. Like this, this soothsaying kind of character. And yeah, I, I it's funny. They, they do make a uh, small person joke where they're like, what's what side of the rainbow are we on with this one or whatever, you know, which is hysterical. Dude, it is interesting, right? Because these paranormal investigators, these experts call in like this next tier badass, right? This medium in the Tangina character. So you're like, all right, who's this badass, right? Tangina. (laughs) 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 Sorry. But she's like small of stature. She looks like, you know, she hardly looks like a physical threat, but you know, like she's got some sort of badass power, like a Yoda, right? So you're wondering like, you're rooting for this woman. You see how courageous she is. You see that she, much like the Lesh character, she wants to help this family. She's sympathetic. She's compassionate. She's got this power. She's got the bravery to get it done. She tells, like, she warns the parents. She's like, shit's going to hit the fan right now. Like, you got you to gotta pledge to me, like, that you're going to be in for this no matter what happens, you know? So you're, like, all on board for this this woman, and she's a badass, and apparently she succeeds... And then all of a sudden, she doesn't succeed. But not only that, the family isn't even the slightest bit leery after it happens. Steven's like, all right, I got to get to the office. We're moving, but I got to get to the office. I'll be home late. I'll be home later. Mom hops in the jacuzzi, makes the kids tuck themselves in. Like, you're not just the slightest bit worried that maybe something else could happen. Your kid just got eaten by a tree. They got sucked into the closet. We fell out of the ceiling. Like, you know... I mean, like, all we saw, like, the devil himself. We, yeah, it's, like, it's total, it's total chaos. And what do you think about, I'm curious, what do you think about the special effects? Because I actually, there's definitely green screening problems or however they did it back then, but it actually doesn't look bad no. at all. It has, now, the special effects in this have a very Indiana Jones quality, I think, like an definitely. early Indiana Jones quality, which is not a huge surprise. But what did you think about all the ways that they portrayed not only the the practical effects, which there are some, yeah, but also the special effects of which there's much. That there what did is. you make it's of all a lot. That? Yeah, very on brand with ILM. You know, shout out to Industrial Lights and Magic. They did everything here, and I know Spielberg, of course, works very worked very closely with them with the effects. He orchestrates it. He helps storyboard it. Not only that, but Spielberg helped pen this script. 
So he was heavily, I, you know, talk about Toby Hooper again. Like, he didn't really have a chance, you know. He, Spielberg was just too deeply involved. But I love the way the special effects hold up. The practical effects, very cleverly done, beautiful for their, for their day. And it's amazing how many things hold up. I mean, like you said, you could see the slippage with some of the blue screens and the green screens. You could see, you know, the inchworm steak is obviously coming through the counter and you want to do, but you know, for the most part, really, really cool and really, really thoughtful and memorable. I mean, even things like the cutaway with the chairs in a perfect circle, and then you cut away for six seconds and then you go back and they're stacked on the table. Like even things like that, that they had to orchestrate with people like hiding in the cupboards and have to come out. I love that stuff. Yeah. Like I, they had, have you ever seen there's, I've seen behind the scenes videos of people doing that. Like there's stuff that circulates every once in a while where it's like a scene where the camera turns and then people are like, no, you know, scurrying and they show all that, and then and then you see it like side by side with the actual shot of it. Yeah, it's cool. I like, love that kind of shit. Yeah. And when it's done in a practical time like this, and you had to orchestrate it and pull all the strings, you know, I lo- I love like the practical smoke and mirrors, man, because you really had Me to too. think it through. It was expensive as well, and a lot of these things, whether it was pyrotechnics or whatever, like you couldn't really do it twice. It was going to shoot the budget in the foot, so you had to really think it through and get it right and. There's such a re- really awesome blend of like art and science involved with that, that and problem solving. That's always fascinating, and I think it really comes through in this film. It's fascinating to see how well it holds up, and it's almost unthinkable. I didn't even realize that they tried to remake this film in what 2015 with Sam. Oh, Rockwell. did they? I, I don't know. Any, and it was supposedly really bad. Why would you remake Poltergeist? It's I don't think you can do class. it anymore. I just don't think you can do it anymore. You know. Yeah, I, it's like I you, it's like you said. It's like you said. Like there, are, there's no static. What are you gonna do? Put it on antenna on your OLED TV? That right on your smartphone. And you can you can't. I mean, it's funny though because you know what I'm thinking. The, the static is scarier, but you know what I think is even scarier is that, and it's classic. I mean, you see him in different ways. Fallout is obviously very much associated with it, but the the Indian head circle thing yeah, that appears the on test TV, pattern, yeah. Right, I love that. I mean, that to me is way scarier than static. If that she was somehow scary. communing with that thing, I actually think that would have even been crazier than static. Although I don't know if that was of that time. It probably was, but yeah, I think so. So, Dig, what what have we not discussed about this film that you wanted to touch on? The only thing that I wanted to bring up that I haven't yet is just I did like as we've been focusing more on our show. I did like a lot of the corporate callouts or the the brands that appeared. Oh. And I thought it was especially cool to see Dunkin' Donuts. I don't know if you noticed that. There was a Dunkin' Donuts mug yes, on the yeah. counter. Classic. Ritz, obviously. I love Ritz. It's so interesting to see how few things change there. Hills Brothers Coffee, which also hasn't changed at all. Holiday Inn, which has changed a great deal. But two standbys that appear in so many movies, and it just goes to show you, if you track them, how they just don't change. Yeah. Clorox bleach, Tide laundry detergent are also in this as well, as well as Fantastic Spray. Remember that with a K at the yeah, end? Of course. So I love those little touchstones as well. And seeing just, because we were talking about when we did Kramer versus Kramer, which is such a wonderful movie. We were talking about the supermarket scene where it's just such a good glimpse into products at the time. And also a good glimpse into Americana as far as how little things change. That Ritz box is not much different than the Ritz no. box I have in my, my cupboard right now. That Hills Brothers can is arguably no different than what you would get now from is the supermarket. Funny? I just think that's so cool when you find something. It's like that orange and blue Tide box is just iconic. They'll never change that. Why would you ever so. change that? No. No, you see flat. it automatically. You think it. Right. 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 The so, colors, the design, the pattern, the proportions. Like That's fascinating with me with advertising. We talk about this on the show sometimes, but the fascinating thing about advertising for me 
when you see a company after like 50 years or 75 years change their logo or change something where it's obviously a different iteration, they're updating it for a modern era, they feel like they need a refresh versus not doing that. And what is the impetus there? You know what I mean? Like, it's fascinating for me how it changes and how it doesn't change and why, you know, like, why would you like, it would be like Target changing the bullseye logo all of a sudden or something else, you know? I would I would commend the evolution or trying to do something new, but also does that work? Does that fly in the face of your success? Because everybody knows this other thing. You know what I mean? So mm. I, I'm fascinated with that dynamic of like when do we change it? How do we change it? You know, that type of thing. So especially with core brands like you're talking about. The other big thing in the background of the kids' room, the alien poster, there's an alien poster in Robbie and Carol Ann's Room, which is decidedly not a wonderful movie. We covered it on the show. Decidedly not a children's movie. And that brings up the point for me, Carl. Think back to 1982, a couple years before you were born, Little Dagan, Little Dana. This movie was rated PG. (laughs) Really? This guy's ripping his face off in the sink. And there's like globs of like his face and maggots and like, you know, like terrifying imagery of like giant skull faces leaping out. And like, it's amazing to me because this is obviously two years before, about two years before PG-13 rating came on board, became a thing. So it had to be rated R or PG, but I really don't think if it wasn't a mogul, you know, a guy with Spielberg's immense Hollywood power that this movie could have ever gotten a PG. That he is he is the only reason this movie could have ever gotten a PG rating. This movie terrified me as a kid. I mean, think about PG Transformers the movie was PG. Or, you know, you might have a Care, Bear, Care Bears movie that's PG or I don't know, what's a good example of a like a really innocuous PG movie and then you have this rated the same way. I think that's I think that's absolutely fascinating. You know, that's how it was back then. Because Yeah, it's I was going to say, first of all, I think parents were just more laissez-faire. We've, we've talked about that I a lot, so right? I think so, too. Sure. And, but I also think that if you look at this movie, it did thread an interesting needle where I would I would say it's not very scary. I, I understand why you were scared of it. I don't remember being scared of it. See, I wanted to bring this up. I'm so glad I remember this. This movie, there, there's a unique thing about being Generation X and maybe an early millennial. Maybe just a millennial generally is that we had the video store experience, which was just a very ephemeral thing in history. It doesn't sure. exist anymore. It existed for 25 years or so. You either were there or you weren't. And movies took on, in my opinion, some sort of facade of something, humor, fear, whatever, as you saw them over and over again walking through the stacks as a kid. And I remember being like, Pet Cemetery, oh shit. And Cujo and... And misery and all these things. And misery is a great movie, but they're not that scary. And I remember also mom specifically really playing up the fear of Stephen King. Like, I think she was just really scared of that. And I kind of absorbed that. But does that make sense to you? So this was a movie like Pet Cemetery, like Friday the 13th. This was just one of those movies that was on the shelf. And I wish I knew now or then what I knew now to not have been so leery of it. Because I think I was. I was like, you know, something to be scared of. Like I've told the story about how I used to rent Nosferatu from the thirties yeah. and not even watch it. Like I would rent it constantly. 
and like just not even no wow because i couldn't bring myself to do it it's like here it is here's i love castlevania i love dry here's this really scary thing and then i would just bring it back to the library wow and so it is interesting to think about from that angle that this movie is of that time this pantheon hellraiser and all these other things where right the the box art became just iconic and I don't feel maybe I'm wrong, but I just don't feel like movies even have the ability to have vibes like that anymore where they kind of just they exist as this thing you see on a, on a shelf or something that enters your mind and you're not really certain what it is based just on the back of the box or just on an image or just on a notion. It's a great point. And, and to me, this movie really represents that a lot. Where, yeah, that era, right? I mean, yeah, yeah kids right. don't really have that proxy anymore. I think the closest thing they have now is like a thumbnail on Netflix. Right. If they scroll down to the horror thing and they look through those thumbs, I mean, now they could also watch it if they have access. But, yeah, they don't have that. They don't have the ability to be frightened by something that's forbidden or that they sh- they know that they shouldn't see or that they don't have access to. Because back then, if they, if your parents weren't renting it for you or if you weren't catching it on cable after they went to sleep, sneaking on the TV or whatever, you weren't going to see it. But it definitely reminds me of that era. Poltergeist, The Thing, The Exorcist. Um, Alien, of course, all the the early Halloween flicks. The Halloween uh, VHS cases, really, the first one, two, three, they definitely frightened me. Yeah, Poltergeist, I think, really got in my head when I was a kid because I really felt like it's funny looking at it now and how popcorny it feels in many ways, but it really felt like a realistic thing. It felt like something that could happen to me. You know, there was always some sort when you're. When you're a scaredy cat as a kid, and I'm still the same way, for me, it's like you, you talk yourself out of things. You know, it's like, all right, Friday the 13th, that's not going to happen to me because I'm not at summer camp. You know, Halloween's not going to happen to me because of this. You know, this the exorcist isn't going to happen to me because I'm not a girl. Like, whatever it is, like, right, you right. Would, I would always talk myself out of Because I go to confession. <laughs> <laughs> but Poltergeist, it was like, oh, yeah, like, this this happened to a typical suburban family. I guess it's the same thing. It could happen to me. It's funny. I'm not a big, I mean, I really with movies, I'm a big, I, I take them as entertainment. I'm a big suspension of disbelief guy. I could, I could go in for things. The one thing in this film that got me watching it this time is like, you have this gorgeous neighborhood, right? Successful upper middle-class family doing really well, at least middle-class, right? Gorgeous newish house, three car garage, the the boy and the girl are sharing a bedroom. Yeah, yeah. It's a three bedroom house. The car has a three car garage. Is that a yeah. thing? I, you would think I, that's I a would five the bedroom same, house. Yeah, I thought I thought the same thing that it was strange that they were in. But the, they had to because yeah. that's come. You know, they had to be in the room together because the way the film was written, right? But that was the one. That isn't that funny. That's the one thing that I'm like, come on. You know, I understand you're falling through the ceiling and there's like watches and you know ropes covered in strawberry jam and all that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that I looked, it really did look like jelly. I don't know if that's what it was. I love I me some strawberry jam, but I'm not eating strawberry jam for like another three weeks now. Oh, fair. Well, that's not too long. It doesn't have to. That's not to too bad. It has to get out of my head. It has to kind of recede a little bit. Dig, is there anything else that we've left unsaid about Poltergeist? You know what? The only thing, and I wanted to know if you even caught this, because I this is one thing that I caught as a kid that wasn't really akin to like imagery or something frightening or dynamic or colorful. There was one thing I caught in the film that I was always fascinated by this. When the paranormal investigators come in and they first start talking to the family, the one scientist who, by the way, for years I thought was Carl Weathers. 
It's not. Right. <laughs> he does kind of look like Carl Weathers. He's got he's a little not. bit of a he's Lando. A he's got a little bit of a Lando thing going on too. Just he the, does have a. Yeah. I, I thought or, yeah, Billy, Billy D. Williams. Yeah. Billy D. Might have been a little too distracting. He's a little too suave. Right. But right. Great character actor. That's Richard Lawson. But Rocky was so on our radar. I think Rocky Three was already out at that point, so that was all over our radars. But he explains to the family. He says he saw this thing where this Hot Wheels car took seven hours to move across this kitchen floor, seven feet. It took seven hours to move seven feet and never stopped moving. And the fact that you couldn't even see that type of movement with a naked eye, that he needed to see it with a time-lapse camera, that idea has always haunted me and stayed in yeah, my it's, head. It's, it's horrible. It's, it's a horrible thing. It, it's unbelievable. It's a Philadelphia experiment type, it's- you know, scary thing that scares us you and me you know like i totally understand like i totally get it you and i are are find the same horror delightful you know in some way where it is creepy like the supernatural the unexplained is horrifying and what i really love the most uh is when shows and movies try to tackle it in clever ways i don't know that this is one of those but I don't know if we have brought up the show. I, 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 or it's a movie or a show. It's on Netflix. I forget what it's called. I haven't watched it. It came out a couple of years ago, but it was about how there were scientists discovered conclusive proof of an afterlife. So people started killing themselves. Like everyone. Like it was oh, rare. Shit. Like, because they were like, we don't. What, well, there's like an afterlife. We were going by. Right. And like, that's so there's it. like mass suicides and stuff like what that. What is that series? I don't. I don't. That's what I'm saying. I don't remember. It was like an. It was on Netflix. It's I think. It's a great idea. Yeah. It's an awesome idea. And I love when things tackle the supernatural in such a way that makes it believable or like, I actually think interstellar does that as well with the fifth dimension and Great. the Tesseract and all of that at the end. So yeah, I don't know that this is one of the movies in those in that pantheon, certainly, but it's cool to tackle the ethereal in some way because it is creepy as fuck. And I do believe that there are things we don't understand. I don't know. Clearly there are many things we don't understand. I just don't know that it's spiritual. Right. I, I, I could believe in a God. I could believe that. But right. I just it's hard for me to believe in the horrors of devilry and spirits and malign influence and all that. I'm like, I don't know. That just seems too personal. It just in other words, I just feel like that's too personal for why would they care about me? Mm. Yeah. Mm. And that's kind of the thing that then takes me out of it, which is why I think when movies focus on individuals really well, like Rosemary's Baby, like The Exorcist. It's extra scary because it becomes about one person, right? Yes. And like one person's evil. And in Rosemary's Baby, it's basically getting raped by a devil. I mean, that's basically what happens in the movie, right? Yeah. And yeah, that's interesting that you put it that way. Like, why would they care? You have this giant, you know, godly, universal entity that's like, you know, galaxies huge or whatever that you, you, whatever you believe. You know, why does it boil down to like one individual, like, that's why yeah. deism is so attractive because it, it just says like God doesn't know or care about you, right? Like yeah. it, any, any, any supernatural being set this in motion and this certainly does not care about what you say or do and <laughs> that you, that you think it does is hysterical. I can, I can buy that. Right. So, the self-importance involved in that or, you know what I mean? The, right. Or just saying like it happened billions of years ago. Like maybe God is dead. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things you can go into with fiction i think i think when it comes to the occult or the supernatural or the paranormal i think what makes it scary for me kyle what keeps it scary 
is the question of whether it exists or not. You know what I mean? That's the thing. If we had, it's like aliens, right? If we had compelling proof, and it seems more and more on the aliens front that we may have some proof that's yeah, yeah. pretty uh, We can't get into that because that, that creeps me out too much. It does. Uh, me too. But, you know, along the same lines, if we had proof of these, of ghosts existing, let's say spirits, things that move between dimensions, things that we could actually see, tangible, tactile, not even threats, but just things that we could witness as people. If that question was answered, it would be less scary. It would be a, it would be a giant paradigm shift for our perspective. Um, and it would be interesting, maybe a little frightening, maybe more than a little frightening of how it would change humanity's outlook on everything definitely but you know that for me that's what keeps it compelling and scary and that's why i really don't see the questions ever being answered i don't know it's it's a weird feeling that i get but if we had you know if 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 it came down on one side or the other and it became a thing i just can't even imagine that you know what i mean i think maybe because i spent 47 years being entertained by it or wondering about it or being frightened or having nightmares or, you know, but never having, you know, that's what I think that that's the crazy thing too. And not even to stress the point too much, but like people that have witnessed this, if it has happened, right. And they're not actually crazy people that have actually witnessed the paranormal ghosts, whatever type of thing where they really happened and they really, they really swear up and down that this thing happened. How do they go, like, how do they function? You know what I mean? As normal human beings, no, having that knowledge or having had that experience, you know, that's a compelling notion to me. And that might, who knows, maybe that's uh, maybe that's something to build fiction off of. But yeah, I mean, the uh, if you guys haven't seen this movie, especially you younger cats out there, I think it's worth a watch. I think just for, I honestly think just for Joe Beth Williams, I think she's so good in this. I was, I was like completely shocked how good she was, especially because, you know, you look at her in the beginning of the movie and how she kind of really comes into her own and you really buy it as like the, you know, as like the protective mother bear who will do, who will stop at nothing to get her kids back. Like it's good shit. It's really good shit. And like to have such compelling performances in a, in a movie, that's pretty crazy, you know, pretty, pretty right. good stuff. And Craig T. Nelson, it's amazing. We don't, I know he's done stuff in film and television, but I, I, I don't get enough. I, and coach coach was on for almost 10 years. Did you know? Yeah, that? I saw that. I don't remember it going so late when I was that's like, a reading long it. Time. But yeah, he did. And then he had, he was in a couple other series too later on. I didn't watch parenthood. I didn't that's watch, right. but he, he was the main character in that. But yeah, he's, he's excellent too. And you know, Dave, I think for me, it comes down with horror. Things like the Philadelphia Experiment, which we just talked about. Yeah. Uh, or the Tunguska event in 1908. Sure. Which is the origins of the resistance story in games, but is like an asteroid collision with Russia, or so they think. And all of this, like, to me, the supernatural is one thing, but I actually find real horror in what I think are, because you, you, had, you had said, like, what are the paradigm shifting things that we would discover about ourselves or our world that would change everything. And I think God or supernatural stuff like that would be one of them. Certainly. Sure. But I think the other two paths are, are even crazier, which is like we encounter another intelligent species, which I think will change everything. Or we travel through time. And what I mean by that is like going and altering things, seeing things, anticipating things like, 
moving forward in time is certainly possible. It's actually relatively easy to do. No pun intended, because it has a lot to do with relativity. But I, I get more scared about that. So like when you think about the Philadelphia experiment and the ship comes back and people are fused into it like and that's real or the aliens appear and it's like, no, we're here. Or I was reading about this particular drive, this ship drive that this is like hypothetical way to, to travel faster than light, which they bend space in front of the ship to make it shorter with dark matter so that it travels less time and then the space kind of comes behind it oh, but it can wow. create like black holes and do all these things and i i feel like those are the things that are scary like things in us interacting with very real phenomena very real phenomena yeah. aliens very real phenomena black holes and cosmic mysteries very real all those kinds of things dark matter real and all of that when we interact with that in some sort of malign way that to me is much scarier because it is real yeah right that's like a great if you, point if you encounter like Mass Effect, we, we did Mass Effect last year, right? And in, in that they discover like these Prothean ruins on Mars that proves to them that there were at some point other people. And that's scarier than being like, I wonder if God exists. And then they go out to Pluto and they find that the moon of Pluto, Sharon, is a fucking piece of technology. Right. That's scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Know, like, I hear you on that. Right. Absolutely. I agree. I, I agree with you on that, too. Yeah. Because it's powerful. Because it's real. It's right. Real. Exactly. And, and like the movie Arrival from four or five years ago is yeah. a really wonderful movie Good that movie. I think shows how creepy and scary a situation like like an alien arrival would be. Yeah. And that's a great how you wouldn't even know how to interact with them or how to even speak to them or communicate. I, I that to me is far scarier than not going to confession and, and, you know, having to having sin come through you from God or. Right, six 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 and all that i'm like okay that's scary in its own way for sure as we said earlier but not as scary as you can leverage reality so i want that's what i wanted to leave yeah no you're right it's real things versus ideas really is really what Mm. it comes down to indeed yeah yeah my friend well said thank you well dig we always end every episode of knockback with a dad joke so i all right it to you all right now i promise you guys out there took some knock knockback jokes it's going to be your jokes going forward i got a lot Got a lot to choose from. This is one of my favorites. This is from Gina on Twitter. Kyle, why did the cowboy get a... How do you pronounce this word? Why did the cowboy get a dachshund? Is it dachshund? Dachshund? Oh, dachshund. That's like a wiener dog. Dachshund. Right. Why did the cowboy... So say it again. Why did the... What is it Why did the cowboy get a dachshund? I don't know. He was told to get a long little doggy. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. Good shit. That's excellent. Excellent stuff, Gina. All right, my friend. Well, thank you for your time today. Thank you all out there for your love, kindness, and support of all things Knockback and Last Stand. We appreciate you. We'll see you next time for more Knockback, of course. Until then, goodbye. Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity. 
Andrew Morgan, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLDFMA, Jorge Palomino, Daniel D'Amour, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Tom Quinn, Sorta Serious Gaming, Unofficial Controller Podcast, Colin Farley, Zia Parix, Henry Groth, Joshua, Relentless Rex, Troy Miller, Meyer Katz, Jordan Mittman, J.A. Zhu, Tristan Palacios, Drew Mullen, Graham Plays, Christian R., Jad Rita, Kurt M. Gillenberg, Patrick Skipper, Sweaty Mitt, Chris Kelly, Dustin Graff, Peyton Stone, Roberto, Nick R., Josh Hallen Rui, Tyler Watkins, Troy True, Dan Root, Talisman, Christopher, Randall Halsey, Bobby Nauman, Nuke Dukum, Jim Bob, 56, William Holbert, Dr. Stump, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Vornak, Betty Ann Moriarty, Daniel Johnson, H. Trons, Jordan Peterson's Fat Hog, Ethan Davies, Jay Getter, Manuel Ochoa, Bjorn Campbell, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Slavinsky, Galja of Fortuna, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Poot, Gavin Newland, Saul Balcazar, Brian White, Raul Melendez, Eric Harden, Alex Bolton, Matt Martin, Kinnums, Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, Caswell, Anti Kinnanen, Chris, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Mason Cadillac, Ali Fritz, Zach Allum, George Anthony Nunez, Kyle Hagel, Christopher, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naiman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, Stewie 108, Patrick Montgomery, D.B. Cooper, Cody Bradbury, Tom Cargill, Richter 86, Steve Hodge, Holfeldian, Ian Bravo, Barrett Boswell, Andrew Parker, Christopher DeVaio, Chris Morton, Kevin Komaki, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Jonathan Coach, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Brian Chan, Organic Produce, Shane St. Pierre, Carlos Algorit, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubba, Josh Yeager, Martin Beck, Joey Andrzejczyk, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, Eric Finkenbeiner, Lou and Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, Dylan Burns, Jason Lusky, Malachi Wall, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Anton Kay, Brian W. Rath, Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bellow, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zaniga, Sean Battershall, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixie, James Kitzel III, Will Caldwell, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kiniston, William O'Carroll, Jesper Jansen, Max Cannon, Phil Crone, Throw7, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, Petro Rose, Lockmore, Geo Corsi, Joey Gondhaliker, Gerald Pennington, Justin Wagaman, David Ayakalu, Paul Joyce, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Shane Rayum, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Keith A. Lewis, Marius Carson Peterson, Ryan Greenwood, Tyler Harris, Matthew Perdue, Patrick Harper, Madmock Media, Jonathan Rice, and Casual Misfits Gaming. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, oh, oh. 